Unlabeled Leadership is a volunteer service. We appreciate our guests for their stewardship and remarkable stories. We also appreciate listeners like you who back the show with star reviews and contributions. Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 130, Curtis Odom Stewart's Others to Succeed. Here's a shout out to listeners in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, Weatherford, Oklahoma, Cary, North Carolina, and St. Louis, Missouri. With that, let's get started. Dr. Curtis Odom is an entrepreneur, business owner, former Fortune 100 executive, author, teacher, consultant, and a coach who motivates, educates, inspires others to achieve their highest level of success both professionally and personally. He served in the Navy and then navigated through various roles in firms and corporations and now is an executive professor of management at Northeastern University. He's a member of the Forbes Coaches Council and a distinguished principal research fellow at the conference board. To give you an idea of what he's like, Here's a quotation from one of his students. There was never a single period that I felt my opinion wasn't valued, respected, or relevant. No matter your age or experience level, Professor Odom made it clear that he wants to learn from our experiences as well as create a positive and knowledgeable environment so we can understand the best way to improve in any situation. Part 1 Lighting a fire. Leadership can be intentional or unintentional. Putting it another way, your actions can be intentional or unintentional. From a leadership perspective, you're continuously modeling leadership behaviors, and those behaviors can have a lasting effect on people, whether you intend it or not. Dr. Curtis shares a story that illustrates this. Here he is. When I think about someone who said something life-changing or that had an impact on my life, I am taken back to my senior year of high school. I was one of those students who never really studied in elementary school. I just seemed to get everything fairly easily and that turned into good grades and got to high school. And that worked, that magic worked for, I'd say, maybe the first year, maybe half of the second. And then I realized the fact that if I was going to be successful, I needed to study. The challenge was that I didn't really know how to study. At that time, was too proud to either take the help or ask for the help of how to study and how to do well with many different academic subjects. Fast forward through four years of high school, and my grades toward the end of high school were not that great. Quite frankly, I was too focused on having fun with my friends and, and playing sports rather than academics. And it had gotten to the place where all of my friends were applying to go to top colleges and getting into these top colleges and, and getting the nod to go off to schools that have that one word title like Brown and Yale and Harvard and others. And I didn't really have the grades to do that. And I remember my guidance counselor said to me, and I'll, I'll leave the name out to protect the innocent or the guilty. My guidance counselor said to me in senior year, she said, Curtis, you know, you may want to think about going into the trades because people like you just, they're not really meant to go to college. They're not really set out to be in a structured learning environment. I don't think that that's something that's going to work well. 
This is a counselor who is saying this to the current Dr. Curtis Odom. <laughs> Ironic, <laughs> is it not? Um, that's exactly it. I had someone tell me at age 18, whose friends are all going to college, that, you know what, you're an imposter, you're a poser, and don't even think about going to college because you're never going to make it. It'll be a waste of time and your, you know, your parents' money. And that was hard to hear, but it did do something. What it did for me is it caused me to think about alternative paths for my education. That conversation, that gutting, soul-crushing conversation that I had with that guidance counselor way back in 1990 turned into me looking at joining the military. I ended up joining the United States Navy. I enlisted. I was not an officer. I decided to join the United States Navy and take my opportunity to reinvent myself. And I joined the Navy for three reasons. One, I wanted to see the world, which the Navy did allow me to do. Hmm. Two, I wanted to get paid while I was seeing the world. And three, I wanted an education and I wanted someone to pay for that education for me. So I spent those 10 years into, in the United States Navy. I got my bachelor's degree while on active duty. I spent seven years of the 10 years on ships and at sea. And the last three years had the opportunity to be on shore duty where I would, on the nights that I didn't stand duty on the base, I would go to class and finished my bachelor's degree before I got off of active duty. I was smart enough to contribute to the GI Bill while I was in, and the GI Bill would later buy and pay for my master's degree. I went on to finish my doctorate and graduate from one of those one-name schools that I was not, quote-unquote, cut out for back in 1990, but in 2009, graduated with my doctorate in education from Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. That opened the door to allow me to be what is now full-time faculty in a business school in Boston. To be someone who just was not cut out for college to now make my way through the entire tree of degrees, if you will, and now to be full-time faculty in a business school in Boston, teaching students who might have been told the exact same thing. It's amazing how someone can say something to you that may not have had a certain intent. When that counselor said you should consider going into a trade school or something like that, the intent wasn't for you to join the Navy, get your bachelor's degree, end up with a PhD in education, and then become a faculty member. It represents a way of leading that it's unintentional, which is really a curious concept. It truly is. And I, I've said to myself many times that either that guidance counselor was the most rotten person in the world or they were a genius. What happened was a fire was lit under me in a way that has served me well. The thing that, that really gets me going is when you tell me I can't do something. Mm. And when, you, when I'm told that I can't do something or that I'm going to fail at doing something, I just have this innate thing where I have to prove you wrong. I had to have somebody basically kick me in the teeth, so to speak, before I realized, you know what? I'm going to prove this person wrong. Thank goodness for people like that. I know. <laughs> it's ironic, yes. It's, <laughs> it, as much as I hated that moment, I have to thank that person for wounding me in that way because I tell you, I healed up better than they could have probably even imagined. Maybe that was their intent all along. I don't know. Part two, working with rather than working for. Of the seven leadership principles I talk about, six of them are about how you interact and think about other people. Believe in others, connect with others, put others first, give up control, encourage growth, 
collaborate with others, are all about how you interact with other people. Curtis shares a story that illustrates some of these principles. Again, here's Curtis. You know, I've had the opportunity, really, from the time I left the military, from the year 2000 to the year 2011, I call so many jobs, so little time. This is before it was okay to have somebody have a year at this place on their resume and a year at that place, what have you. But I moved around because I was always looking for new experiences, new exposure, and I was somebody that wanted to move up quickly. So I would move from opportunity to opportunity. Well, this one opportunity came to me in the year 2005, where I had the first chance to work for what I would call a big company. It was an international company. It was a conglomerate. It owned other companies. It was international. I was hired as a senior learning and development consultant, which I think is kind of interesting because I went on to be a professor as I am now. In that role, I had the chance to work with people who are still friends of mine to this day. And the person that I was working for, I would say the best boss I ever had. And the reason why I say that she was the best boss I ever had is that when I went to work every day, never over the course of just a year and a half that I worked for her before I moved on to another role in another location and in another company. The one thing I can say, and it's the greatest compliment I could give anybody, is I would say that I never once felt like I worked for her. I always felt like I worked with her. She was somebody who was savvy enough to hire people who knew things that she didn't know, who had gotten results in areas that she had not before. She knew people, and she knew that if she would hire people who were passionate about what they were doing, that she would be successful. And here's what I learned from her. She taught me by her practice more so than her words is that she would tell me what was needed, when it was needed, why it was needed, sometimes tell me where it would be needed, and maybe sometimes tell me with whom I should work or who I needed to chat with to make things happen. The one thing she never did is she never told me how to do the work. She let me own that. And in that space, she gave me something that so many people look forward to right now, which is empowerment. She gave me empowerment because she let me own the how to do the work. And she said often, she's like, look, I hired you because you're smart, you're talented, you've got the energy. I expect you to amaze me with what you do. And I thought that that was powerful. And it's something that I've adopted and carried forward with me through the other stops along my way through the um, so many jobs, so little time. And the fact that when I got the opportunity to lead people, I made sure that I never told them how to do their job. I gave them everything else, and I've often said, it's up to you to amaze me with the how. The only exception would be is if they came to you and said, I'm stuck, or how should I get started? That's a little different, right? It is a little different, and it it goes back to what this one person I was mentioning that I worked for, I had those moments, and I would go to her and say, listen, you know, how do I do this? She would ask me this question. She's like, what have you tried so far? Ah. If the answer was nothing... She would like, well, go try something and then come back and let me know how it goes. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I got that same reaction from people who worked for me. And I hope that they would say that they worked with me instead of for me. But on the org chart, they were part of my team. And they would come say, you know, well, Curtis, I don't know how to get started on this thing. I said, well, what have you tried so far? Nothing. Well, go try something and let me know how it goes. And you know, and if it goes right, let's do more of it. If it doesn't go right, let's figure out why it didn't go right. And let's try to do something else. It's so simple in saying it, but so difficult in executing on that. 
there's a commonality in practice when hiring employees where the manager tries to find the brightest, the best, the most qualified for doing that particular role and hires them. And, and then a divergence happens. Either it's a situation like you just described where you give the person ownership of the role and of the actions. You set the parameters and let them figure it out, or you have what too often happens where the manager tells you what to do and all that hiring for the best, the brightest, the most insightful doesn't mean much because that type of a manager doesn't allow the innovation and creativity. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And and the interesting thing behind that that I have found is that a quote that I have taken that is something that's very important to me, and it, it ties back to the Navy. Rear Admiral Grace Hopper, who at one time was the oldest living member of the United States Navy, she is famous for this quote, and I'm paraphrasing, that you lead people, but you manage things. When I thought about that, it's like, okay, you manage things. Things to me are budgets, timelines, metrics, and expectations. But you lead people. And if you're going to lead people, that requires influence, inspiration, and for me, persuasion to make that happen. To your point, when someone is managing people, that almost is a mismatch. You don't manage people. You lead them. You manage their workload. You manage the expectations or you manage what it is that they're supposed to get done. When you find yourself managing people, that's where that term micromanager came from. People don't like to be managed. People want to be led. And there's no greater way in my book to lead someone than let them take ownership of their path. I really believe in these things because I've seen these things happen. I have, I've been managed and I felt like I was in some type of a vice where I just couldn't really move. And I felt that if I didn't do what exactly what it was expected of me, that I was going to be kicked out or put on the island of lost toys or something. When I've had people who have allowed me to bring my creativity and bring my thinking to the space and the place, and even if it didn't go right, instead of like, you know, yelling at me, they said, okay, help me understand what you were thinking when you did this. What did you learn from this? And how are you going to apply this going forward? Much richer conversation. And dare I say, the respect quotient goes way up. I doubt many people wake up in the morning and say, oh boy, I can't wait to go to work to have my boss tell me how to work today. <laughs> That's <You know>? right. <laughs> Who wants that? <laughs> Not many. Part three, feedback is something you have to ask for. Previously, I mentioned six of the leadership principles that I talk about frequently. The one I didn't mention is develop leadership practices continuously. For you to do this effectively, you need feedback. There's no way of getting around it. Curtis gives some advice around feedback and some other things. Here's Curtis. One of the most important things that I've learned, both as someone who's been in a leadership role, someone who has worked for and with some really great leaders, and as someone who consults to organizations full of leaders and actually is an executive coach to many leaders, is that feedback is really the most important tool out there for growth. Many of us don't get feedback until we're pretty far down the road or down the into our journey of leadership or being in organizations because feedback is something that you have to ask for. 
not always will people give you feedback because maybe they're afraid to speak truth to power. Maybe they're afraid to tell you what they're thinking. Or in my case, when I was younger, maybe people were giving you feedback and you're just not listening because you're so either goal-oriented or hard-headed, as my mother would say, that you didn't really focus in on it. But what I've learned is this, is that those leaders who are the best leaders, they ask for feedback and they use what they hear to make themselves better. So what I would say as advice to others is think about the people who are in your network, those people that you go to for learning, those people you go to because you trust them, those people you go to for advice, and those people who you would consider your friends. And I would get into the habit of asking them this, what behaviors have you seen from me that I should start doing, stop doing, or continue doing? Just like a red light when you're sitting in traffic, stop, start, continue, red, yellow, green, asking people just simply, hey, you've been with me for a while, or you've known me for a while, or you've worked with me for a while, what's something I should stop doing? And then listen to what they say. Ask them, well, what's some things that I should start doing that maybe I'm not? And listen to what they say. And then most importantly, listen for the answer to, hey, what are some things or something I should continue doing? Because in the answer to those three questions, you'll know what you should stop doing because it's not having a positive outcome or effect that you would like. You'll know what you should start doing because maybe you didn't know and maybe by having this feedback, it gives you an opportunity to be seen in a way that's more favorable to you and, and, and by others. And certainly continue is important more so than the other two for this reason. What you should continue doing allows you to not always be in I've got to fix myself mode. The continued doing tells you, you know what, you're doing these things really well and we love it. Do more of this, keep doing this, or don't ever not do this. So I think the idea of feedback as a leader, be willing to ask for the feedback, ask the people who you know that are going to tell you the truth. They might not be candid because to me, being honest and candid is a difference. You can be honest and tell somebody what you want to say, but you're nice about it. As someone told me, candor is just saying what you have to say and not really caring how the other person's going to feel once they hear it. But for me, I think that some of the best feedback I've gotten have come from people who have been candid with me and told me maybe what I needed to hear, but didn't want to, but has made all the best outcome for me. I think what you're saying is not just ask for feedback for start, stop, continue, but then to follow up and saying, how am I doing with starting, stopping, or continuing. Yeah. It's not one of those conversations you have with those folks that you might identify just one time. And I'm not saying you want to do it every week either, but you know, maybe you do it a couple of times a year. Just enough. You know, I mean, many organizations have performance reviews and all these things. And they do it once a year. And for me, once a year is just not enough. That's too infrequent in my book. But I think if you get in the habit of asking, you know, maybe to some of the people in your network, maybe once a quarter, maybe you do it at the change of the season and just say, hey, you know what, over these past 90 days or so, anything you picked up on that I should stop doing, start doing or continue doing and just see where that goes. Be prepared the first time you ask people that they're going to look at you a little strangely and be like, what are you asking? What do you (laughs) really want to know? Because this is coming out of nowhere. That's a good thing sometimes. But I think the more you ask the people that you pick, they'll see that you're genuine. And more importantly, there's no greater way to pay back someone's gift of feedback to you than having them watch you change your behavior in the way that they think is better for you and for your success. That becomes a crucial moment when someone gives you feedback and you act on that feedback. The moment is is that they learn that this person is receptive to feedback. They would be more open to give better feedback. 
absolutely. If they care about you, they'll give you feedback. If they don't care about you, why would they waste their time giving you feedback or trying to help you be better? So that's why people say that feedback is a gift and I truly believe that. My thanks to Dr. Curtis Odom. If you'd like to learn more about Curtis, go to the show notes. And if you have a question or comment, go to onlybeleadership.com, click the message icon, and you can leave a voicemail message for up to one minute. I'd like to thank those who contribute to the show. Your contributions makes a difference because this is an all-volunteer service. I'd like to thank you for listening. This is Gary DePaul. Until next time, lead on.